dude, you've got two brain tumours and you're booked in for emergency brain surgery in a couple of days. You've got this. Being a clinician, you see it every day and you just don't ever want children to go through what they go through. I'm that 2% that have survived. I actually died twice on the table. Research is the key to better outcomes for these kids. And there is hope. Extract every bit of happiness out of life that you can. Parents have a child with cancer. Imagine going through what they're going through. You've got brain cancer. Honestly, I've never hugged so many strangers in my life and I've never cried to people. Finding a cure for all children with leukaemia and cancer. We need the kids thinking well, to get well. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Well, this podcast series has amazing guests and they're from all parts of the globe. We've got another accent on here. Dr. Yost Lesterhouse, thank you so much for coming on the show. We all want to hear your voice now. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. (laughs) Where are you from? I'm originally from the Netherlands. And so what brings you to Perth and how long have you been here and what have you been doing since you've been here? Wow, that's a lot of questions. Um, It was actually the science, the research that brought me to Perth. So um, I'm a medical oncologist myself, an adult oncologist, and um, I was treating a lot of patients uh, with cancer, including uh, patients with sarcoma. Those are cancers of the bones and the soft tissues, such as fat or muscle. And I found that a lot of patients were not treated the way I would like them to be treated, in the sense that um, the main therapy still is chemotherapy, which has very harsh side effects. And unfortunately, um, the outcomes were not as great as I would want them to be either. So I decided I wanted to do research, which I did. I did a PhD in immunology, cancer immunology in the Netherlands. And I finished my training in the Netherlands. And then I wanted to go overseas to explore the science more. And there was a, uh, an awesome group in, in Perth uh, doing work exactly that in that. So that's what brought me and my family to Perth. Can you tell me, I guess, the difference in terms of um, aggressiveness or how it attacks the body, sarcoma in children versus adults? Uh, I guess, so there's two main baskets, if you will, of sarcoma. One is uh, cancers of the bone, and they are particularly common in adolescents, in in, uh, children between 14 to 20, 25. And then there is the cancers of the soft tissues, the muscle. They tend to occur more frequently in smaller kids, 0 to 6, let's say. So, uh, And then there's sarcomas that uh, occur more frequently in elderly people, and 60 plus, and they tend to be more in uh, the the, the kidney uh, region in the back. They tend to be more derived from fat cells. What would be the definition of sarcoma? Like in the dictionary or your version, what is it? Oh, that's a very that's actually gets to the core, I guess, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, there are basically benign tumors and they're malignant tumors. So benign tumors are cells that are growing a bit more than they should, but they still stick to the borders. Like if you have a uh, a wart, um, they they grow a bit faster than you would want them to, but they stick to where they should be. What a cancer does is that it doesn't stick to its borders anymore. It starts growing into neighboring tissue, and sometimes it even lodges into the bloodstream and then travels through the body, and then deposits there grow again. So for sarcoma, it's exactly that, but it starts in tissues that have to do with the connect, basically connective tissue. It can be bone, it can be muscle, it can be fat, uh, or other connective tissues. So that's sarcoma. 
And and why children as your as your vocation? I guess why did you? Why was that appealing? Um, well, actually, because I'm I'm trained as a medical oncologist, I actually started um, with young adults in particular because the sarcoma patients that I saw as an adult oncologist were typically between seventeen to twenty five. Um, of all the cancers that I, all the different cancer types that I saw, I must say sarcoma was always closest to my heart because people were young and because treatments hadn't really changed in a few decades. Where if you look at breast cancer or bowel cancer, there were lots of new treatments coming in, melanoma, lots of new revolutionary changes and really improved outcomes. We didn't quite see that in the last few decades in sarcoma. So that was why I wanted to go uh, really into that research. When I was asked about five years ago at Telethon Kids Institute to join, I, 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 it took me a second and I immediately said yes for exactly that reason. We need to really do better. So you would rather invest your time in something that is really, really challenging rather than the ones that we're sort of making progress with. You want to be part of something bigger than that. Exactly. That's, I, th- that's I think really we cool. can make a, a, a big difference. I think there is a, a, a massive unmet need and that we we need to come up with a better solution. Mm. Um, so what are the stats on sarcoma in, in young people in Australia? Is it, is it prevalent? Is it frequent? Do we know how common it is? In, in principle, luckily, all kids' cancers are relatively rare if you compare it to adult cancers. So um, on a typical uh, year in Western Australia, for example, it's about 120 kids that are diagnosed with cancer. Um if you divide that then into subtypes of cancer, the most common one is by far is leukemia, mm-hmm. uh, followed by brain cancer, and then the third one is sarcoma. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the statistics, um, usually the first treatment that children will get is chemotherapy and surgery. So you try to remove the tumor as much as possible, but we know that some cells remain behind and they can grow out again. So what we tend to do beforehand, also to make the surgery not as extensive as, as um, yeah w- to make it less extensive we, we pre-treat with chemotherapy then do the surgery and chemotherapy again that's pretty intensive chemotherapy tends to be almost up to a year and what we then still see is that in, in quite a few children unfortunately cancer comes back and for sarcoma as a, as, a, as a group in its entirety still one in three children die of their disease mm, that was my next question is yeah what are the outcomes one in three that's pretty high it is. It's too high. What's being done to lower that? So there, there's all sorts of different approaches that you can look at. Um, uh, classically, it was chemotherapy and radiotherapy and surgery. And particularly radiotherapy is, is not very attractive in children because we do tend to see long-term side effects for that. But the same holds true to chemotherapy, although it is a very important addition to tr- treatment and has definitely improved outcomes. Um, in the last decade or so, for quite a few cancers, there have been um, discoveries about genes that cause the cancer to be very aggressive, and drugs have been developed, and have some, some amazing examples in melanoma and, and some other rare cancers, including uh, some, some very rare sarcomas. Unfortunately, the majority of sarcomas, we haven't been able to find these sort of genetic switches that if we switch them off, uh, we can improve outcomes. Unfortunately, it, it, it seems to be a very stubborn cancer in that in that sense. So another discovery for the last uh, several years has been immunotherapy, trying to boost the immune system against cancer. 
again, in, in some cancers, in adults, in melanoma, lung cancer, we see amazing results. Uh, 40, 50% of patients, even with metastatic disease, they still basically see cures from time to time. Unfortunately, in kids, we don't see that that often. Uh, it's quite rare to see cures. Uh, and particularly in sarcoma, again, it seems to be a very stubborn disease and we haven't seen those results. Why not in children? Because I wonder, I know that they've got obviously little bodies, but I also know they haven't been exposed to anything. So sometimes they can be blasted with, with higher levels of chemo and things like that. So why is their survival rate lower than the adults? Um, that's a complicated question. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, I, it, there's a few reasons for it. First of all, the sarcomas um, are a tiny bit different from the sarcomas that we see in adults, but including in adults, we don't see that much response to immunotherapy either. Um, the second thing is, and that's something that we're investigating at, uh, at the Cancer Center in uh, Telephone Kids Institute uh, as a collaborative between all the different groups, is the immune system is pretty immature in children. It's not really been challenged a lot yet by viruses and bugs around us. And you can see that. Um, it's just not as active yet. So one of the things that we're specifically looking at is whether we can find levers to pull to activate the immune system in, chi in children better than, uh, than we can now. In terms of studies and clinical trials, what have you been part of over the years and what are you part of now? So, well, one of the things, um, like I said, the, the, the primary treatment in sarcoma tends to be surgery. So you're trying to remove as much as the tumor as possible, but we know some cells remain behind and they grow out in, in the end again. And we can give chemotherapy or radiotherapy, and that will reduce the chance of it uh, reoccurring. But we also know that that chance is still pretty high. And we also know that the side effects of those treatments are pretty horrific. So we, we took a step back and said, okay, if we have this moment that we have actually access to the cancer during surgery, perhaps we can do something locally there that can prevent the cancer from recurring. So what we've developed is uh, a gel, a gel that you can apply during surgery, the surgeon can apply that, um, that slowly releases immunotherapy uh, after the, they close the wound uh, and the, the patient can just go home uh, like, like, like usually. But then uh, over the course of several days or weeks, this gel slowly releases immunotherapy, attracting immune cells into the wound area uh, that then can become activated and mop up any remaining cancer cells. So we, we've seen some, some good effects uh, for that in the lab. And we uh, see that it, it is actually uh, working. And we have then taken another step, because before you go from animals in the lab to human patients, mm. uh, there's a lot to be thought about. Mm. And we considered another group of patients that have a lot of sarcomas, uh, and those are pet dogs. So it's actually one of the most common cancers in dogs and veterinary surgeons have the exact same problem that human surgeons have. They take the tumor out, but it fortunately it tends to come back. So we offered owners of dogs the possibility to uh, participate in a clinical trial um, where the, if their dogs had a sarcoma and we are now currently applying this gel in that context where we, uh, we have had nine... Uh, pet dogs, patients, we call them, <laughs> um, uh, and treated them with the gel, and uh, we're almost uh, ready with, with that uh, trial. And basically what we're trying to see is whether it's safe 
this is one of the key things with doing a treatment during surgery is that you don't want to see long-term side effects, but you also don't want to see um, problems with wound healing. Mm. The last thing you want to see is that the wound opens again. So we've seen that it's safe, and we've seen that uh, there were no side effects, uh, uh, at least so far, and um, we see uh, evidence of immune activation um, in because of the gel. So oh, that's cool. encouraging. Um, and can the this gel go anywhere? The sarcoma is being removed anywhere on the body. Yeah, in principle, it it, it could. Yep. I, I'm so intrigued by the by the uh, the the hound research. That's that's amazing. Are the results promising? It's very difficult to say because um, with the surgery alone, sometimes the the, the dog is already. Uh, cured so it's it's not we won't have treated enough dogs just yet um to be able to say that with uh, certainty but so far it's looking good and when so once we're done with that do we replace the dogs with children or young people and what other things need to be taken into account when we're dealing with humans yeah the next step and that's something that we're working on now is indeed to go to humans it's becoming more stringent then, of course. If you want to make a drug that you actually apply in a clinical setting to a patient, the standards are higher than when it is in, in a veterinary setting. Mm. Um, so we have to um, make this gel and the drug under very uh, stringent conditions. So uh, we need some funding for that. Speaking of which, um, I mean, how long does it take for something like this from go to woe? How long does a clinical trial go go in terms of duration to get those results? Is it years? Yes, certainly. Yeah. So, so funding. Do we know how much it would cost, say, to fund a a, a clinical trial like this? Or oh, a, a, a clinical trial where you actually make everything at the stri- most stringent conditions, and you do that in a few dozen people, then we're, we're quickly talking about several millions. Millions. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, why should people fund research? It's one of those things that. We don't see our return on investment, as you say, immediately. How do you convince someone to put their $50 into something like this? I, I guess it starts really at the end. Um, it is, like I said, with, with the children, and, and the same is true for adults. Unfortunately, we still have so many children with sarcoma that uh, die of their disease um, that did not have the benefit of some of the treatments that were um, effective in other cancers. Um and the treatments that they do get are sometimes have horrific side effects. So we really have to do better. And the only way to do that is by understanding more how the disease behaves, how we can attack it using new treatments. And sometimes we need to have a bit of a left left field idea to 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 get it uh, under control. But the only way to do that is by by research. And the only way we can do that is if we have enough funding. Mm. Um. Tell me about your involvement with the Child Cancer Research Foundation and, and the Institute. You, you've been a part of this journey for, for many, many years. Um, yeah, just to kind of pump up the tyres of the foundation. You know, they're great to work with. Yeah, they're absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I guess what particularly, perhaps I should take one, take one step back and explain how the current funding environment is in, in, in research in Australia. And, and, and the sh- short word for it would be... Uh, difficult slow and slow <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it's very difficult to have enough to get enough funding in to do the research um we tend to have to write lots of grant applications for a very short time for uh, s- tiny bits of money um and and it really keeps us out of the lab 
and it keeps it, us out of the clinic and all we do is, is write grants. That's perhaps exaggerating a bit, <laughs> but um, it there is some truth to that. And really what the uh, CCRF has done fantastically, can I use the abbreviation? Mm, of yeah. course. Um, is, is actually provide some long-term funding and that really has allowed several of the groups at Telephone Kids Institute to do some some to develop some new ideas uh, and really bring those ideas towards fruition. What are some of the um, the good things that we can say about sarcoma? Because I know it's been um, you know a little bit down in the dumps, and and we're talking about one in three su- surviving and things. Is uh for a parent who's listening to this, whose child has just been diagnosed, what are some takeaways or some things that you can share with them about the disease that their child might have right now? Currently, well, there, the good news, I guess, in, in, in general uh, sense for, for any pediatric cancer or any cancer at the moment is there is quite a bit of movement in the research space. So there's quite a lot of different trials opening where we all test different avenues uh, of treatment. And some of it can be like what I just explained uh, in the context of surgery, but others can be just classic drugs that are either given as tablets or, or in the clinic. Um, so I, there is a lot of movement. So if your uh, child has just been diagnosed um, or if you're wondering about what uh, the opportunities are, definitely have a, a chat with your uh, consultant medical oncologist and, and, and talk more about that. What's the best thing about your job, Joost? I guess uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I really like, um, I like to be surrounded by creative people. Uh, it's fantastic to come in to a place where there's a bit of a, a buzz, where you know that ideas are going, bouncing back from wall to wall. Uh, I love it, the fact that, and this is a very... <laughs> I really noticed that when I started Telephone Kids Institute, where everybody really has this one common goal in mind, front and center, uh, to have happy, healthy kids and get better outcomes for children with cancer without the severe side effects. It's really quite empowering, I guess, mm. um, to come to such a place every day of the week. And it's it's really, really cool. What does a day look like? Because, I mean, I'm thinking of you wearing a white lab coat, looking in dishes and things, but what is it really? Uh, well, it's not entirely untrue. Um, I, t- I tend to be, uh, unfortunately, I'm not as often in the lab myself anymore as I, I would like to be. Um, where, uh, But uh, the people in, in the team definitely are. I guess, uh, yes, you are in the lab a lot, working with cells, uh, working with laboratory animals, um, doing lots of different uh, assays and we're particularly interested in the immune system so we do a lot of immune assays um, but also there's quite a bit of computational work the, the whole big data field has definitely well it basically started perhaps even with science but it's also on a daily basis um, we uh, we do a lot of big data analysis I, uh, my old PhD supervisor said uh, in the past you would do an experiment you would analyze it for five minutes and you would do your next experiment but nowadays you do an experiment and you have to analyze it for a few weeks. Um, it's not entirely uh, like that. But yeah, we do look at, for example, thousands of cells in one sample. That we look at thousands of genes within each cell. And we have to compare how, that, how those cells are talking to each other. And if we then apply immunotherapy, how that changes, how they talk to each other. 
So the number of comparisons that you have to make are in the gazillions, and you really need some computing power to analyze that sort of data. So there's quite a bit of computational analysis. And then when we have meetings where we uh, look at the results and get excited or frustrated or are down in the dumps once in a while, but uh, usually we get a way around it. And then, um, uh, yeah, we, we, we tend to wrap it up in a paper and that we publish and then we go further and hopefully put it into a clinical trial. I asked um, Dr. Rishi the exact same question because it's very data-heavy, science life. How do you escape? What's your little outlet? Please tell me you do something quirky and random. <laughs> Can't say. I've actually just started supping a bit, so stand-up pedaling. <laughs> oh, see, that's great. So you need something. F- surely you need something for your mind, for mindfulness like a, to escape. Is that yours, getting on the water and paddling? Uh, I, I like the water, so I'm also a windsurfer. Great. And uh, I love to go to the beach, for sure. Um, but the other thing to escape is just I walk to work um, uh, and, and, and do a bit of running. So those things all help, I guess. So what do you, do you miss anything about the patient-facing side of your, your profession? I did very much enjoy that side of my profession at the time. Um, but I must say it has... Uh, I, I like the creativity of the lab. I like the idea of coming up with something that's not there yet. Whereas an oncologist, I was, uh, I guess, implementing or testing new drugs w- um, or treating patients with, with known drugs. And I like the creativity of trying to develop something entirely new that is not there yet. So yes, I do miss it from time to time, but it's being made up by having that creativity aspect to it. What does the future look like? I mean, in your time before you pass on, what would you? What would be your legacy, and what would you like to see happen in this in this space for you? I guess the main thing that uh, th- that I would love to see is that we have not only treatments that are more effective, but also that they don't have those uh, horrible side effects that we have with a lot of the older treatments. So basically, if we did chemo surgery and then remove the second chemo like something like that or what would be you know in a literal sense in terms of treatment what is what is the part of the sarcoma treatment that's really you know peppering a small body is it the is it the chemo at the end or is it just the return of the sarcoma or or what is it that actually is the the biggest effect that is causing you know death in, in young children Oh, the death is usually due to the sarcoma coming back. So the treatment not being as effective as it should. Once in a while, we do also see long-term side effects, for example, on the heart that can cause death as well. But that luckily is more rare. It's more that it actually affects the life of the child all the way up into adulthood afterwards Mm. that that we should um, work on. Um, so ideally, I would definitely want like to reduce the chemotherapy burden. Um, really, truly blue sky ideal. Of course, get rid of chemotherapy altogether. That will be fantastic. But uh, yeah, we're certainly not there yet. How far away are we from that? We're talking, we're talking te- decades? Yeah, I, I, it's very difficult to say because once in a while you suddenly have something that changes the field dramatically. We have had that. Uh, for some leukemias where certain drugs came around and suddenly changed everything. We have seen it with certain immunotherapies and melanoma um, and, and kidney cancer. I'm, ho- I'm hoping it, would ha- it will happen sooner than in a few decades, um, but I can't be sure. 
For people who are listening um, and also big stakeholders as well who are looking to, to donate money, why would you donate to childhood cancer research when it affects such a small bunch of people in comparison to your breast cancers and things? Why would you go to, to such a niche you know, area? Well, for, of course, I, I, there, there is the, the... With a child dying from cancer or having the side effects, you're actually talking about 60, 70 years that are being affected or actually don't even happen. Um, whereas with uh, a breast cancer, bowel cancer, that tends to occur more frequently in, in 60, 70-year-old people. Um, so yes, it's it's not as common. Um, that's one thing. It's really it's a very long-term disease. In even if you survive from it, the side effects are really affecting the child in in unfortunately many cases for the rest of their life. And the second bit is that unfortunately it's quite underfunded. So pharmaceutical companies tend to be interested in, in the big diseases because that's where the market is. Whereas in the smaller markets, such as in pediatric cancer, there is just less interest, unfortunately. So it really comes up to governments or philanthropy or donors to actually step in there and make a difference because otherwise it simply won't happen. Because, I mean, we all sort of have someone who we know has been affected by a breast cancer or a bowel cancer or melanoma, um, but m- many of us in our lifetime will never be exposed to a child with cancer, but many of us have children or know someone with children or an aunt or an uncle. So it's also pulling on that as well, that it, it we are linked to it all. Absolutely. In some way. And so it's not about um, just surviving. It's the quality of life afterwards we're looking at. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Um, in terms of, uh, I guess, um, tips for, for parents or or listeners, is there anything that you'd like to leave listeners with in terms of the research space or, or about you or, or about childhood cancer in general, um, whether it's a fact or, or a bit of knowledge from you or, or a story that you've had over your years, um, just to leave people with a little, a little story from you or, or some info? That's a tough one. <laughs> I guess there there have been some examples in the in the last few years. One of them is is the the CAR T cell field. That, that's a, perhaps something that people will recognize. That's a new treatment where you take immune cells from a child and and uh, genetically engineered give them back to attack the cancer. And even though it only works in in some patients, unfortunately, the ones in in, in some cancer types. But when it does, it does so. Fantastically. So really the cancer is, is being uh, cured and, and it's been some wonderful examples. So what I guess I, w- I wanted to say is that there are some examples in the recent past where you see that a new treatment actually makes a massive difference to some children. And you just need to start and actually take a punt, do that research and get it all the way into the clinic. And when you do, once in a while, you have these amazing breakthroughs. So I'm hoping that we can have more of those going forward, particularly in in pediatric uh, cancer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm never going to forget Yoast. It's like toast. (laughs) Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be here.